Okay. Do I? Yeah, I don't really need to be looking at anything other than you. Yeah, correct. <laughs> correct. I may, I may occasionally um, do like that, and then make you come up here when you're speaking. Okay. Um, but other, and I might occasionally throw up a Bible if someone asks something Bible related. But other than that, um, yeah, it'll be just you and I. Okay. So, well, I see two people have joined already. Awesome. I'm going to um, sit tight for a few minutes and wait for a couple more people to join. I know the various social channels take a minute to catch up sometimes. What do you do in Dallas? Um, I work in cybersecurity, so I am a, a real life ethical hacker. Right. I study the Bible as my side gig. <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend in the FBI who's in uh, management and cyber. You know, so I, I have a little bit of a glimpse into that world. But it uh, is it is not diff very um, different, I think, than um, kind of your world. Requires a lot of deep, very deep digging. You got to go past the, you know, what jumps out at the surface. It's often not, you know, your fringe pop logo. It's often not what they what they appear to be in the, you know, at the first mm -hmm. glimpse. Good afternoon, Norman. Um, thanks for the shout out. How's the audio and the video, Norman? Is everything clear? Can you hear us? Can you see us? Um, is there any bizarre echoes or anything along those lines? <laughs> Shoot me a little one in the chat um, if everything is a okay. Good afternoon, Cynthia, <clears throat> visiting us all the way from the Caribbean. I'm going to give it a couple of more minutes. Um, is your fact, mom in yet? Yep, she, that's Cynthia. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can always count on moms, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Norman. So we have clear audio. We have clear video. It is now 11 o'clock. Well, my time, 12 o'clock for Eastern time. We will now begin. So um, welcome to Bible Hacking. Um, today we have an extremely special guest, Dr. Michael Heiser. Um, he doesn't know I'm about to say this, but Dr. Heiser is probably single-handedly um, the person that got me um, kind of reinvigorated about the Bible. I've been a Christian for a very long time. So it is a massive honor to have him here to just, you know, be able to kind of chew the fat a little bit and find out, you know, what's new in Bible and, you know, kind of get some questions answered. So I'm going to start by saying I have been hyping up online a lot that we will be giving away two of these. You can probably see them better there. Two books of Enoch, um, volume one and volume two. I have two sets of them right here. They're both going to be given away to some lucky audience member. Um, so stay tuned on how to do that. Um, but you got to be active in the chat. You got to be obviously tuned in live and I'll give you instructions, but it'll have to do with the chat. So they're here. I'm going to FedEx them out today to the two lucky people that win and you will have them in your mailbox or whatever tomorrow. So if you're interested in that, hang around. Um, so on that note, let's dive in. Um, this is going to be very Q&A heavy as well. So if you have questions, put question in the, the comment, you know, in big capital letters, and then, um, you know, put the question behind it so I can identify them quickly. Um, I see lots of people starting to join now. Good afternoon, Michelle. Thanks for joining. Michelle is one of our mods. Michelle is phenomenal. 
um, Phil, Mr. Phil Fox, Norman Hardman, CMB, the ambassador, grace and peace, brother. Um, so let's dive right in. Dr. Michael Heiser is here with us, as I mentioned. Um, Dr. Heiser, um, I'm going to give you a super quick introduction. Dr. Heiser is a biblical scholar, written numerous books. Actually, many of them are in the background behind me. You can probably see demons fuzzy in the background as well as Unseen Realm. Um, Pretty much every book Dr. Heiser has written is in my library somewhere, as well as many others. So he's a prolific author, host of the Naked Bible podcast. And I'd like to say welcome to you, Dr. Heiser. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad uh, you know to hear my work actually was useful and helpful to you too. It, it really, really, really was. Um, and it's also um, interesting, um, the impact I've seen it have on particularly the older generation. So not just my mother, but, you know, I, I come from a generation of Christians where, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of don't push against, you know, what is known and what you, you, you know, what, what tradition has told you. Um, mm -hmm. So typically when I would bring up, you know, very subtly things, you know, maybe you're reading that wrong or maybe you're missing some some detail there um you know usually the pushback would be very heavy but un inevitably like i i don't have any examples of where this hasn't been the case once they dig in a little bit deeper um that you usually start hearing oh my god this is changing my perspective <laughs> so um that's good that's good yeah so, yeah well once you see it you can't unsee it exactly that, exactly that was my experience yeah. yep that is very 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 true um for, for myself as well. I'm going to jump in with a question because I am sitting here and I have the honor to ask my own question first. So I'm gonna jump straight in. Um, one of the things that's been on my mind, and we can talk about Enoch. As a matter of fact, this is probably orthogonal to you know the, the con a conversation on Enoch. So mm -hmm. I've heard you say many times, Dr. Heiser, you know, the book of Enoch doesn't need to be canon for it to be important. Um, you know, it tells us about, you know, the, the, the worldview and the perspective of the, the, the ancient Near Eastern biblical audience. So for that reason alone, it is important. Um, what about some of the other books? Uh, I've been struggling, uh, struggling is too strong a word. I've been kind of parsing through and, and, you know, processing texts such as, for example, Tobit or even um, um, one that I've, I've been hitting with a lot, Maccabees. So mm -hmm. what makes one text um, canon versus another text that is not canon? And I'll dig deeper into that question and where that's leading, but let's, let's start with yeah. that. What makes so one text canon versus in, not? In a Jewish context, the, there were two sort of broad um, criteria for canonicity. You know, one is the one you'll, well, you, you may hear about both of them, you know, sort of in a evangelical church context, but, you know, maybe not. One was, can the book be traced to, you know, the, the hand of a prophet, okay, prophetic, a prophetic line, a prophetic lineage might be a better way to say that. And that, that gets a little, a little fuzzy, or at least it sounds that way to our ear, but to the Jewish community, they sort of had a sense of, of who it was that they accepted, you know, from the biblical period, it, it's easier because, you know, we have a textual accounting of these people. And then after the biblical period closes, after they return from exile, you know, then you, you still have a few kind of straggler books, you know, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, if you think it's late, so on and so forth. So they have to be attached in some way, you know, the, the community has to recognize some attachment to this prophetic tradition. 
So that was one criterion. The, the other one is a little more simple, and that is the Jewish community tended to not recognize something as canonical or sacred if it was not witnessed in Hebrew. Hmm. And that pretty much wipes everything off the table uh, in the apocrypha and, and pseudepigraphical material. Now, there are some exceptions like Ben Sira, you know, has, has a Hebrew witness. But, you know, that, that sort of makes sense because it's the... It's their community. They're tracing this back to biblical days when they actually did things like write in Hebrew. You know? So there's this point of connection. And that, that, that was the standard. You know? And so it was why books like Enoch were not considered really even candidates for this. Now, there is, there, the, the major exception are the people at Qumran. They did referenced the book of Enoch in the way they referenced, you know, books in the Hebrew Bible. They wrote a commentary, you know, they had commentary. There's, there's evidence of that on Enoch. And the, the other one they did also was the Temple Scroll. Um, but everything else that gets commentary treatment is in the Hebrew Bible. So you know, this, this particular sect of Judaism at Qumran widened, you know, the gap a little bit. And you know, that's part of why Enoch gets attention. Of course, the other part of why it gets attention is the, the early church had an attachment to it because uh, the early church didn't have the, the Hebrew criterion. You know, it's like, hey, <clears throat> you know, when someone had to invent the codex, okay, we have the Septuagint. Let's, let's put that in a codex, bind the one side and create the book. You know, we take this for granted now, but somebody had to do that. And then there were these other books included in codexes. And a lot of the major codexes had, you know, Enoch and these other books. And so the early church just kind of grew up with it. You know, in other words, the fact that it was included in a codex tells you that the early church had had an attachment, you know, to the book. They were utilizing it. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it should be considered canon, even if it's in a codex, because there's lots of things in a codex that aren't thought of this way anyway. But it just gives you a little bit of a glimpse into the consciousness. So the theological answer to this is, is the community, the believing community, hmm. is led by the Holy Spirit to recognize which books should be considered sacred. And this is why you have people like you know, Tertullian and Irenaeus who, who fought for the, the inclusion of Enoch. You know, toward the end of their lives, they just basically owned the fact that they were the still small voice out there in the wilderness, you know, arguing for this. And, and they, they were humble enough and I think reverential enough to say, we're going to assume that the Spirit of God has led the mass of the believing community in this direction. It's not our direction, but, but we are going to, you know, lay the sword down and assume that the Spirit of God has led this way and, and we're fine with that. So it, it was really kind of a a community spirit led recognition of certain books. Um, this is all, you know, you, you have the, the Gnostic gospels were never even part of this discussion. Even when they, in ancient harmonies like Tatian's Dia Tesseron never included Thomas, you know, there are just things that, that never even get to the level of discussion. Uh, Enoch is, is again, one of the few that did, um, you know, because of its influence. Uh, you know, the, the way it filters into the New Testament and again, early church attachment to it. And, and you know, that attachment, you know, shows a, a deep awareness of the content. So that it, 
that mattered more. I mean, nobody's arguing about should we include Menander because Paul quotes it in the canon. Nobody's arguing about the bail cycle, you know, when Psalm 74 dips into that or Psalm 29. Again, it has to be more than usage for, for a book to even get floor time, you know, for consideration. And, and Enoch is one of the rare exceptions to that. So let's take that, let's, let's dive a level deeper into that. How do we then parse out with that, what you just described in mind, doctrinally, mm -hmm. what fits in, you know, our doctrine and what doesn't? And I'll, I'll give a, a pretty extreme example. I uh, can't remember exactly where it is. Somewhere in Maccabees, I want to say Maccabees 12, one Maccabees 12, maybe two Maccabees 12, don't remember. There's this talk of praying for the dead. Um, you know, there's a war and a bunch of people get killed. And, you know, the, the commander says, hey, let's go and pray for the dead so that they're not damned, you know, to hell, basically, or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the, the correct term would be there. I've always understood, like, in my Christian upbringing, that that you, you can't pray for the dead. Once you're once they're dead, they're dead. That's the end of that. It seems as if at some point it was part of the Christian body's understanding that you could do that. When did that change happen, and how do we determine which is valid doctrine and which is heresy? Yeah, I picked that one on purpose because that's borderline yeah. heretical to most Christians. Like you can't. Well, we also, there's also something else that needs to go into the mix. Actually, I would say two things. You know, there there is a passage in Peter that that people still argue about today, about whether after you're dead you get a second chance. Okay, this this notion of um, again, you 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 may get you may get a chance to still embrace the gospel at that point. Again, there are still arguments about this sort of thing. So that that's not the same thread as the other one, the, the prayer for the dead, but it, it's it's a related thought. And so that that becomes part of the discussion. So it's not just a Maccabean idea of you know, at least in terms of the second chance or, or something like that. Um, the other thing is we have to be really careful to assume from a book, any book, Maccabees, Enoch, whatever it is uh, in the Second Temple literature, that everybody in the Second Temple period looked at it the same way. Uh, you, we, have, we have somebody, at least one person wrote that book and wrote that verse. How representative that, that is of not only the wider Jewish community, singular noun, but communities. Again, there is no such thing as, as one monolithic Judaism in the Second Temple period. It's just like Christianity today. There's no such thing as one monolithic Christianity. We've got infinite varieties of it. You know, the big ones are Eastern Orthodox, Catholicism, and Protestantism. Protestantism breaks into, you know, how many, goodness, dozens, hundreds, you know, okay. So, so there, there's no one mind and one voice in, in Judaism. So what we know for sure is, okay, we know, we know at least one person thought this, and it's probably fair to say that, you know, other Jews thought this, but to put a percentage on it, like, is this even representative of Second Temple Judaism? We have no way of knowing that. Now, a good, a good sort of telltale sign would be is if this item gets discussed in a lot of other books, yeah, and that increases the chances dramatically that this would have been a, a, a doctrinal idea. But if it's only in one book, in one verse, 
that's probably not something we can really say was doctrine in Second Temple Judaism. To somebody it was, but as far as a, a widespread influence, you know, I, I would doubt that significantly. You know, and there are other things like this, you know, that, that only, you know, pop up once or twice, you know. So how, how do we know what's going on with that? So I, I think that needs to be part of, of the mix in, in, in approaching a question like this. Now, my own assessment with all this material is that I think all of it is useful. You know, I, as you, you quoted me earlier, you know, a, a book doesn't have to be canonical to, to be useful. All of this stuff tells us how somebody, somebody in the serious Second Temple Jewish tradition was thinking about the text. Now, this might, in this the case of this verse, are they linking back to something in the text or are they sort of being innovative? What I want to know is what's the context for making this statement and do they hook into anything else preferably in their own sacred scriptures like the Hebrew Bible. And the way you would tell that is, you know, you'd have to, you know, look at the Greek, the Greek text of that, you know, are there any touch points with some other passage? Could they conceivably be thinking of this passage in the Hebrew Bible, of course, in the Septuagint, you know, when they're using, you know, when they're writing this in Maccabees? You know, I don't know. It, it, to me, it's like if you can't attach it to the Hebrew Bible, then this thought that they're thinking is not, something that has a, a direct relationship to the stuff that nobody would argue is sacred. And therefore that's the fodder from which, that's the pool from which we get our doctrine. It could just be a, a tradition of some rabbi, some, some teacher that was known. And this guy's passing it on in, in, in the Maccabees you know, book. It, that's nice, that's, that's interesting. Maybe it's part of a bigger topic, okay? But at the end of the day, if, if it, all we have is some sort of rabbinic tradition that doesn't really attach itself well to the stuff that everyone accepts as sacred, I'm not looking at it as doctrine, period. It, it's not good fodder, you know, upon which to build, you know, doctrine. So, again, that, that's just how I, I look at it. I'm, I'm always looking for breadcrumb trails. You know, I'm looking for how people interpret the, the, the scriptures, you know, that, again, the canonical stuff that everybody accepts. How are they thinking about it? What insights do they have here? And, and I'll tell you why it's useful, because if you don't read this material, if you're stuck in one little tradition and sub-tradition of Christianity, you'll never even think about the questions you could be asking. It'll never occur to you. It'll yeah. never occur to you that, that, that this verse over here could be thought of this way. It'll never pop into your head. So that's really useful um, to help us think about the biblical text. And so anything that really helps us think about the biblical text to me is worthwhile uh, doing. But, you know, I, I have these, these parameters in my head and I just described, you know, how I think about some of that when it comes to this material. I, I want to see the breadcrumb trail. Show me your work. You know, your, our math teachers used to insist on this. <laughs> show me how you got the answer. Did you just get lucky? If you show me your work, I'll know. <laughs> Yep. So that's what I want to see. I, I want to see the writers, you know, give me the breadcrumb trail so I can follow their thoughts. I love that. I love that. So there's a question in the chat. I will post the question in a second um, for you to answer. But I, I want to make two comments to the audience. One, the next question that gets dropped in the chat 
gets this um, next biblical related question, gets this bundle mailed to them via FedEx. You'll have it in your inbox tomorrow. It's volume one and volume two. The volume two is brand new of Dr. Heiser's companion to the book of Enoch. So the next question in the chat that's for Dr. Heiser um, gets this. So I'm monitoring. Um, you mentioned, you know, kind of figuring out what the author's intent was and how they're speaking. One of the things, and in your Naked Bible podcast, and um, I saw someone post that, I'm going to repost that right there. Um, definitely make it a point to go and check out Dr. Heiser's podcast. I listen to it absolutely weekly, um, maybe to the point of driving my wife and daughter completely insane. But my wife, because I listen to a lot of podcasts, and my wife does say Dr. Heiser's voice is perfect for radio, like very soothing. Well, that, that's, a so that's, that's a good. There's other people that she says the diametric opposite of like, could you please turn that lunatic off? He's laughing too much or whatever have you. But it is what it is. Um, so your, your voice is well respected and well recognized in the house. So in terms of trying to figure out what the author means, can you re- explain a bit how that applies to, for example, the study that you're doing right now on Revelation. There's yeah. been, and I don't, I, I know you don't really frequent social media that much, but there's been heated debates about why is Dr. Heiser making it look as if John, you know, the author of Revelations, wasn't just reporting the facts of what he saw. Mm -hmm. It looks like Dr. Heiser is saying John is just purposefully digging into the Old Testament to try to make a narrative himself versus I saw this, it happened, and now I'm reporting it and I'm writing it down. Could you kind of dig yeah. deeper into that again, please? All, all of those all of those things can be simultaneously true. Okay, you know, when, when John has a visionary experience, he's not looking at the angel and saying, wait a minute, I got to get my, my paper and pencil out here because I'm going to sit here and, and, you know, draw pictures and, you know, write stuff down, you know, occasionally, you know, like in the beginning of the book, the Lord will tell him to write something down and so on and so forth. So, you know, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you have a visionary experience that you're sort of interviewing angels and you, you know, you're taking notes and in real time, it's a vision. Okay. It's a vision. It's what it is. And so, John is going to be led by, by the Spirit of God to describe this mostly after the fact. I would say almost totally after the fact. And when John does that, pardon John under inspiration, trying to make sense of it for his audience. Okay? Of course he would do that. He's going to see things that because of his understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament, he's going to know where that came from. He's going to know where, you know, what that image means to a Jew or a Christian with a serious knowledge of the Old Testament. So why wouldn't he direct attention back to those things in the sacred texts? Makes perfect sense for John to do that. You know, if John's not doing that, you know what you could charge John with? Idiosyncrasy. It has no attachment to the Hebrew Bible. Why should we think, you know, that, that John is telling us the truth? This is all novel information that doesn't hook into the sacred text anywhere. Look, does that make any sense? Of course not. 
And the fact is that we can read it. You can read the material. We know where John is hooking into. We know what he's doing. We know what he's throwing into the blender, you know, and, and, and wants people to think about. When I relate this, this experience I had, here's what I want you to be thinking about. Here's some help to parse it. Okay. Here's, you know, the this idea, this this symbol, this vision, whatever it is, here's where it's going to hook back into other things that other prophets saw. Okay, he's part of a community. <laughs> it's, it sounds like you're appealing to John's intelligence and John's expectation that his audience has intelligence as well. Yes, he's he's not a robot. You know, he, again, we can read the texts. They're, they're right there in front of us. Why would John have bothered to write it down if he didn't want people to read it? Yep. Okay, if he writes it down, chances are really good. He'd like people to read that. So what I'm trying to do in, in, in the podcast series is, again, just get people to, to take what John has given us, his relaying of, of these experiences, these visions that he had, and how he describes them, the means by which he describes them, the techniques that he employs to describe them and to help his readers understand, help, help them orient it somewhere, the material back into what earlier prophets of God saw. He is in a line of tradition of people that God you know, brought into the throne room. Again, it's, the, it's like I say, an unseen realm. It's the divine encounter that, pre, that, that really validates the office of the prophet, okay? John is, is, is the same as all these others. And so he wants them to see how the things are connected. Now, why would John do that other than just some explanatory value, you know, taking a stab at that, trying to help his, his, the people he wants to, to relay these experiences to? In some cases, it's nice that John does this because the readers of John all of a sudden know that, wow, that thing that Ezekiel talked about, that really happened. That came to pass. The prophet didn't lie. It's a fulfillment. You know, in other words, it's confirming of the prophetic tradition that preceded him. Why should we have a problem with that? You know, when I when I jumped into the revelation thing, I I, I prepped people for weeks, saying, "Look, you all know how I feel about eschatology. <laughs> I have a pretty low view of eschatological systems. We're not doing eschatological systems." I'm going to give you the data, and then you can go off and evaluate your own system to your heart's content. What I care about is that you see how the scripture, how the book of Revelation is the capstone to all this earlier stuff and how it culminates in Jesus and how, how John is thinking about the end of days in relation to the fulfillment of this and this and this and this and how it all gets funneled you know, through, through Christ, through Christology. You know, this, this is how biblical theology is done. And, and John in the book of Revelation, it, on the one hand, it, it's great for this because it makes such frequent use of the Old Testament. But on the other hand, John is not, he, he's messy. He just assumes that you know a lot, and a lot of us just are nowhere near John's level of knowledge. Um, you know, a, a few points in the podcast, I'll, I'll say, look, John just throw he takes five or six passages, 
and he just sort of does this. He just merges them. He puts them in the blender, hits the button, mixes it up. There you go. There's, you know, that, you know what the ingredients were in the recipe. And you're supposed to just know where everything came from and why he connected it. It takes study, though. It takes right. knowing your Bible. You're it not going to come into it. Exactly. <laughs> it takes work. I love it. You know, and, and, and John, I mean, the, the if, if there's any practical lesson here, it should be one of humility and shame. <laughs> because John just assumes a lot of his audience. A lot. And if, if we don't measure up, that ought to tell us something. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we're not spending enough time in the text. Maybe maybe we've neglected the new, the Old Testament a little too much because we got oh, no right. idea what this guy's doing. I, that's something I would tweet out if I was in a location where I could like tweet something right now. <laughs> if you're not understanding Revelation, maybe it's because we're not spending enough time in the Old Testament yep. and in the Bible. Yep. I love that. We got a ton of questions. Um, all popped at one time. I can't imagine why. Um, let's jump on this one first. Um, Cynthia Richardson from the Caribbean asks, um, what happens when a believer dies? Does the believer remain in the grave? Are they in purgatory somewhere decaying? Um, is there, are, are they introduced to the Lord? Like what happens when a believer dies today? I, I, I take Thanks for Paul, the question, Cynthia. I take Paul at his word, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know, the body does decay, hence we need, a, you know, a resurrection. But uh, I don't I don't think it needs to be any more complicated than that. I think Paul, if he died, he was expecting to be with the Lord. I mean, and you go back to what Jesus said today to the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, well, I'm glad you believe me now and you're going to be sleeping for a while. And that's kind of a shame, but I'll see you at some point, you know. No, he, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I think these statements, you know, indicate, again, when when there's a severance of, of you know, body and soul or soul, spirit, however you want to put that. You The, the redeemed, I mean, just think about who we are. You know, we're, we're, we are redeemed spiritual beings trapped in unredeemed bodies. That's what we are. That's why Paul talks about the redemption that awaits the body. That's why Peter's talking about fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It's the soul that, that is regenerated and redeemed. The body is not yet regenerated. Okay, it's, We're going to have to either have, you know, I'll, I'll use the word rapture, but not, not necessarily you know, in the way certain you know, end time systems might be using it. <laughs> but we'll, we'll throw that on, onto the table. There has to be either that's some sort of translation event or a death and a resurrection of the body. But the spirit is already, you know, in Christ. It's already regenerated. It's already redeemed. And so Paul could say to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Full stop. Yeah. Another fantastic question here from Benjamin Handelman. Um, are there any good resources? And Benjamin, uh, in my interaction with him, is more than likely a scholar also. Mm -hmm. So take the question with a, yeah. as much salt as you need to. Are there any good resources on what the communities at Qumran use as their scripture? How did they see canon? Yeah, the problem is there's too much. <laughs> um, gosh, how, how would I narrow this? Let me, let me just, I'm going to look. Look this up in my in my uh, Logos library because I've got so much of this stuff. Eugene Ulrich is is sort of the guy um, who is kind of most known for um, 
the Qumran view of the canon. Okay, I'm going to recommend a, a, a general book here. It's by Roger Beckwith, The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church and its Background in Early Judaism. So this book is going to get you into how the people at Qumran thought about the canon. It'll be wider than that. And, and from, an, from an essay like that, I mean, you could even go to Vanderkam's introduction to, to the Dead Sea Scrolls. He has a chapter on canon. And, and he'll lead you to other good resources. Um, there's just a pile of material on this because one of the reasons is because the the textual material from Qumran witnesses to both what would become known as the Masoretic text and also the Hebrew text that underlied, you know, the Septuagint and then the Samaritan Pentateuch as well. And then there were unaffiliated manuscripts as well. So since the, the people at Qumran apparently knew of all of these textual traditions, that's an issue for what, it, what was the state of the text at the time. Okay, that, that becomes an issue. And so when, when you read Ulrich or when you read, you know, Beckwith and, and you know, Vanderkam's introduction to the, the canon at Qumran, you're going to encounter discussion of, of certain books, you know, what state they were in, you know, are they still being sort of reworked by scribes and edited, you know, are they, are they sort of settled or, or whatever. Um, and that, and that affects, you know, how, how the people at Qumran were looking at this. And again, Qumran is like everybody else. They settle on, on what would, what we know as the Hebrew Bible, but with two exceptions apparently. And that was Enoch and the temple scroll. Okay. They, they treat both of those as though they were at the level of, of the rest of the Hebrew Bible stuff. But that's pretty unique uh, within, you know, the Second Temple period. The other strains of Judaism are not going to do that. Um, in, in fact, in the, Samar the Samaritan case, they only accept the Torah. You know, so, so you have a variance of opinion as far as canonicity. But the people at Qumran are going to be Hebrew Bible plus these two other things. And so that, that's what you'll find when you get into it. Awesome. Thank you. This is another doozy of a question. I love this one. How do you view the different canons throughout the Orthodox Church? And this Orthodox has a capital letter on it, so I assume they're talking about the Eastern Orthodox Church. Well, Are they specific to their church? That, I was thinking otherwise. <laughs> but we, but the, well, you know, the Orthodox, capital O Orthodox Church does have a different canon than the Protestants, than the Catholics. Okay, there, there are differences. So again, here, here's the nutshell answer. In the Jewish community, is it witnessed in Hebrew? Oh, it's not? Sorry, <laughs> you're out, okay? Since the early church, though, became overwhelmingly composed of Gentiles, okay, who, who couldn't read Hebrew. Everybody's reading Greek. Well, that opens the gate to a lot of stuff being produced in the Second Temple period in Greek. Okay, Enoch is one of those. Enoch appears in Greek as well. And, and the early church, you know, used the Septuagint because it was Greek. And when the Septuagint moves from scrolls or individual manuscripts to the codex and other books are added in there, the early church begins to develop a wider canonical sense. Okay, it just out of the gate. 
And when I say wider canonical sense, I'm referring to, to what we would think of as the Old Testament. This extra stuff is still Old Testament orientation. So after centuries of that, and after the, the rise of what we would, you know, what would become known as the Roman Catholic Church, that the church just inherits a canon that is different than the Jewish canon. It has some of this extra stuff in it. Well, when you get to the Reformation, okay, we'll talk about the Protestants now, they had a very simple litmus test. Is it witnessed in Hebrew? In other words, they went back to the Jewish model. Oh, it's not? Too bad. <laughs> they, they just went back to the Jewish canon. And so they lopped off you know, the, the books, and then they, they referred to them as the Apocrypha, okay, mm -hmm. which the Catholic Church still today refers to as the deuterocanonical books. So th this is all a matter of historical happenstance and tradition, why we get these different canons. And, and orthodoxy is going to add, a, add or, or remove you know, uh, some of these you know, from, from the Greek material. Again, this is Greek orthodoxy. Okay, so they're working with the Greek you know, canon that they inherit and, and you know, moves east and all this sort of stuff. So all of these things have historical circumstances to them. The Protestant canon that, that most of your listeners are probably used to is in the Old Testament a return to the Jewish model. And then the New Testament, you know, pretty much everybody's in, the, in lockstep there anyway. But that's why we have different ones. Again, my, my, my attitude is, you know, toward it is, look, I'm fine with the Protestant canon. If I get to heaven and, and you know, the Lord says, you know, you know, Enoch was in there. You know, everybody got it wrong. I don't think that's going to happen because, again, I, I'm with Irenaeus here. I would think if the Holy Spirit wanted us to recognize that, he would have moved the church widely to do that. But I'm just using it as, as an example. I'm not going to be disappointed to find out in heaven, you know, that, that maybe there was another book in there. Like, I'm not asking to leave at that point. I'm not disappointed. <laughs> to be there. So on, on one level, it's kind of a, a, an absurd you know, thing to really worry about. My, my approach is that, look, I'll take the minimalist canon and I'll read everything else. <laughs> you know? Because again, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help me understand when it, when it hooks back into you know, Old and New Testament texts, it's going to help me understand how these things were understood and read. And I'm especially interested in Second Temple Judaism because I, I want the older the stuff, the better. I'm not really interested in post-biblical contexts. I'm interested in when the Old Testament was writing, Old Testament writer was writing, what's, what, what's in his cognitive environment that's helping him? And then when the New Testament writers are writing, what's in their cognitive environment? Well, it happens to be the Old Testament and the Second Temple period. If it's after the New Testament writers write, I don't really care too much about it. However, it's still useful because, you know, why, you know, why would we read the church fathers if you have my view of, of this sort of thing? I'll tell you why. Because the church fathers, what they wrote is very contextually conditioned. In other words, they have specific things that are going on in their day that they need to respond to. There are things cropping up. There are really poor understandings of, of Jesus or, or, or scripture or whatever. And this tells you how they were thinking at the time and how they answered certain questions. It also, since they have to think more philosophically, if I can use that term, they have to, they have to think more abstractly because of, of the intellectual forces going on around them, you know, Platonism, Neoplatonism, all this kind of stuff. They have to do philosophical thinking about the text. 
that forces them to ask certain questions that we wouldn't ordinarily think of. It forces them to approach problems and frame problems in a different way than the biblical exegete would. Okay. It, it just, it just helps you think in different ways about the same body of material and, and to try to understand why they landed where they landed, why they said what they said. And that is largely conditioned by what, what the problems were that they had to deal with. And that can be very useful because I got news for you. Last time I looked around the Western culture, it's becoming more pagan. Yep. It's been becoming more pagan for decades. We are, we are moving forward into the past. And I can guarantee you that we can talk all we want about new age and paganism and weird occultic stuff and all this kind of stuff. Hey, the church fathers were there and back a dozen times. This was their world. You know, the, 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 the pre, you know, pre or, or po, you know, what, the non-Christian spirituality world, that was their world. Yeah. Okay. And so a lot of the stuff that, that the church is being confronted with now and will be confronted with then, the church fathers are going to be really useful, you know, to help you. Think I, I, I could not more vehemently agree with you. Even, you know, the stuff you see Peter talking about, uh, quite frankly, a lot of what the Apostle Paul talks about in terms of how we interrelate with each other. Yeah. Like these are our challenges today. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to change directions a little bit. There's a question in the chat about cosmic geography and geopolitics, which I definitely want to hear your take on. But in connection with, you know, like a real world problem, I'm really interested to hear your um, um, viewpoint on this question from the perspective of, you know, someone who has studied the scripture. Um, so the question is, it's a long one. I have a friend who sees herself as lesbian, but wants a relationship with God. She struggles with the thought of being an abomination and she is angry with God because of it. What are your thoughts on homosexuality slash sin slash God's love? Mm -hmm. Well, the fact that you're a sinner doesn't preclude you from the gospel. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can only speculate why homosexuality sort of gets this elite status, you know, among sins. You know, you struggle with, with thinking that you're an abomination to God, you know, because of your sin. Well, yeah. Yeah, we all are. This is why Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say after we cleaned up our act a little bit, after we stopped this or that behavior, you know, after we took, took assessment of our lives and, and, and fixed a few things, Christ died. No, it doesn't say any of that. Okay, we are all sinners. The only thing different is which sin are we trapped by? It's good. Okay, that, that's it. So you're, you know, a, a lesbian orientation does not disqualify you from God loving you. See, we, this, is, this is a huge problem because I, this is why I wrote my little book, What Does God Want? Okay, just a little self-published book. It's the one my nonprofit has now translated, I don't know, 20-some languages. And Supernatural is in about 35 languages now. But, but this, is, this is largely the reason why I did this, because we, we have lots of Christians who at one point in their lives understand the gospel. 
I'm a sinner. Christ died for me. I can't merit my own salvation. You know, I, I have to depend exclusively on his you know, faithfulness that Jesus accomplished his mission. And, and all I need to do is believe it. But then we, we struggle with sin. And there's this creeping thought in the minds of lots of Christians. And it goes something like this. You know, I'm really having a hard time with lesbianism, okay? Really having a hard time because this is this is who I am. It's, it's this desire within me. And, and you know, I, I fall and I stumble and I fail. I wonder if God loves me today as much as he did a year ago when I understood the gospel and embraced it. Okay, God loved you then. Why would he love you less now? Okay, for God so loved the world. <laughs> you know, it, we, we have this backwards. It, it, if, if, you, if you struggle with that, whether, you, whether you're not a believer and you're, and you're, you're struggling with, you know, the, the gospel or, or you're already a Christian and you're struggling with, you know, the, your battle with sin. Again, you know, Paul struggled. But read Romans 7. I mean, he, he had a, a big struggle, okay? We all struggle. You know, John says, if we say we don't have sin, we're liars. You know, we make him a liar. You know, it, it, this, is, this never goes away. It never changes. And that's good news because before we ever even had a thought or even cared what God thought, he loved us. Why would he love us less now? It, it makes zero sense. But we're not we're thinking about it emotionally we're, we're reacting viscerally to our to our own struggle and we have to get our eyes back on the fact that on our best day we can't merit salvation if we could ever say i didn't sin that day well that's nice but guess what that doesn't earn you a seat in heaven there's only one thing that gets you a seat in heaven and that is the work of jesus and all god wants is that you believe it it's all he asks for you embrace it. Your believing loyalty is now with the gospel. You're not going to, you know, add this to your, to your, you know, your holster here, and then go off and, you know, pursue some other god or something like that. You need believing loyalty. I believe this. This is the the exclusive way of salvation, which is what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Pretty clear, John 14:6. I don't see a lot of wiggle room there. Yep. Yeah, don't see any wiggle room there. But but, but again, the, the same person that said that says, you know, that it's because God loved you that I came to give myself a ransom for many. You know? So I understand the, the struggle. I understand the, even the tension. But what it tells me is that you don't fully grasp what the gospel is. It is nothing to do with your merit your, your behavior, your change of behavior, you know, all, all this. God is not asking you to clean up your life for you to realize and admit and acknowledge and bend the knee before the gospel and say, Jesus is the only and exclusive means of salvation. And I believe it. And I'm going to believe it from this point forward. This is the only thing that's going to take my sin away. It's the only thing that's going to make me right with God. Now, your behavior becomes an issue of of discipleship okay and we all have to dispense with things that you know either 
are going to be, you know, something that displeases God and, you know, God, you know, who will forgive us. He loves us as much today as he did, you know, a week ago when we came to, to Christ, you know, through the gospel. He, he doesn't love us any less. Uh, he wants to use you. He wants, you know, you to be a participant, not just a spectator in what he wants to do, because you'll enjoy it. He'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. And when, when we when we cling to things in our lives that we know are, are contrary to what the Lord wants, it's an impediment to enjoying those other things and to being what God wants us to be. Why does God make these laws? Why did he make them for Israel? Well, a couple of reasons. One was to distinguish Israelites from people who followed other gods. That's sort of the easy part. But the other one is because since God created us, he knows what will bring our optimal happiness, stable relationships, okay? This is why we have laws about sex and sexuality and children and, you know, a household free of adultery, you know, and fornication and the complications those things create with relationships, not only with the partners, but with the kids. That is a house of stress and chaos. Trust me, I grew up in one, okay? Okay, God, you know, makes these, these commands because he knows how people will function well and how they will get the most out of this life. Loyalty to each other, loyalty to their community, loyalty to him. They're going to be blessed by it. It's going to be a good life. You know, but he lets you mess it up. He gave you free will. You know, I'm, I'm just telling you how you're going to have the optimal life. Maybe you'll have to find out the hard way. <laughs> you know? For for but someone, none of, you know, none of none of that has has anything to do with eternal life and the basis for eternal life, which is the gospel. Hmm. For someone who, referring to you now, Doctor Heiser, consistently says you're not a pastor, you could never pastor, um, you're not a preacher. I, I've heard you refer to one message you gave at a church, I think, in Washington, where you spoke about Naaman and the dirt, and that was like your only message. But Maybe since then you've given others. Yeah, my historic message. <laughs> um, for someone who keeps saying that, you just had the entire chat room blowing up with people yelling, preach, preach, preach. That was one of the most pastoral answers to that question I've ever heard. So um, thank you. Um, phenomenal answer. Very, very much appreciated. Switching gears again, um, our geopolitical question now. Um, from BK the Apologist, uh, you've been on his show, by the way. You mm -hmm. being on BK the Apologist's um, podcast was what introduced me to BK the Apologist. So we're now friends, thanks to you, in a weird way. So the internet's <laughs> good for something, I guess. Right. How does cosmic geography impact geopolitics today? And I, I assume the context, and I'm pretty certain the context he's going for, we hear a lot in politics today, you know, that America needs to support Israel because of what the Bible says about Israel. And if America doesn't support Israel, you know, then America is tantamount to, you know, Babylon or whoever have you. So how does cosmic geography impact geopolitics today? Right. Well, I, I think that the thing that trumps that subtext of the question is righteousness. Okay. In other words, when Israel does wrong, I feel completely free to say, you're doing wrong. When Israel does right, we ought to say, good on you. Okay. So 
in other words, there, there's no sanctified state or, you know, when I say state, I mean condition for any country. Okay? And, and this, you know, biblical Israel, you know, the, the, the nation of Israel, they don't get a pass on their behavior, their conduct as a national entity because they were elect in the Old Testament. You know how I know that? Because they didn't get a pass in the Old Testament. Okay, God judged them. Pretty obvious. We have this thing called the exile. <laughs> okay. That was pretty traumatic. So the, the fact that they were God's chosen does not exempt them from moral, i.e. scriptural evaluation. Okay? That ought to be completely, transparently, biblically obvious. But it often isn't. So if we move it in, into today, you know, what, what I would hope is that you know, you, you, you take the historical circumstances for what they are. We know what the historical circumstances were, you know, to the rise of Israel as a nation. There were white hats and there were black hats. Okay. That's the way it works in the human world that we can sort of, you know, I guess cynically call anti-Eden. <laughs> All right. Yep. This is the world. It is not Eden. And it's never going to be Eden, despite all the utopian efforts that you know politicians, you know, and political theorists, you know, think they can accomplish. It ain't never going to get there, because it's filled with people who are unregenerate, <laughs> and even the ones that are regenerate aren't perfect. So, you know, with with that as as sort of a a wider context, I think the the cosmic geographical stuff of the biblical world works like it did in the Old Testament. It looks like it, it, it works like it did in biblical days. And that is, and I'll, I'll get back to the, to, the, to, the, to the twist here, and that is, you know, the, the difference between sacred space being a country the size of New Jersey in the Old Testament period, and now sacred space is defined as the body of Christ and believers. And that matters. It's not tied to geography anymore. The church, you know, God's presence is not attached to the nation of Israel, okay, that, that landmass. Rather, it's attached to believers who are everywhere. And that's the plan. They're supposed to be everywhere because God wants to reclaim everything. You know, I mean, this, this is a logical plan. Going back to geopolitics, what, you, you look at Daniel 10. It's very clear, Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, you know, supernatural princes over geographical, geopolitical entities, all that stuff is, is, is there. It's in the passage. It's real. But you have to think about, you know, the boots on the ground. Well, what was it like to live in Babylon? Well, read the book of Daniel. Guess what? It was ruled by a tyrant who had an apparatus to control people. And he often harmed people. He was an abusive tyrant. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, you know, there are others in the book as well. So in other words, Daniel affirms two things. Human tyranny, you know, human activity. We'll, we'll try to pick a nice term, human activity on a geopolitical level. And a supernatural reality or mind or my, minds behind what we see going on in the human world. That's what Daniel affirms for us. How did how were people best controlled in antiquity? Force, violence. Okay. Th these are the mechanisms of control. 
economy. You don't listen to me? Well, good luck finding something to eat. We're going to go burn your field. Or I'm just going to take it. You know, or I'm going to exile you out of here. Good luck living in the desert. I mean, there are just there are any number of ways to control a population through threats and violence and whatnot and tyranny. Well, guess what? That's what that's the way it works today, too. So if I were a, a, a cosmic villain, if I were a cosmic you know, entity, you know, one of the, one of the principalities here, you know, what I would do is I would ask myself a simple question. You know, there's there's a limited number of us here because the Bible only use the, uses the myriads upon myriads description of the good guys. So there's a limited number of the bad guys. Let's not forget that. So there's a limited number of us. And I'm, I, you know, I, I've been given this neighborhood called, you know, America. Hope I can solicit some help from other bad guys, but I don't really trust them either you know, because everybody sort of wants to control, you know, people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find the people who live in this place who have the greatest reach and ability to control people for me. Because I'm smart. I'd rather work smart than hard. So I'm going to use people who want power. I'm going to use people who have that tyranny streak running through them. I'm going to use people who like to manipulate other people. Because I'm looking to move herds and control herds in the most efficient way that I can. Okay? That's, what I'm, that's what I'm doing. So now we have people who pass laws to intimidate and to herd people and to threaten them with punishment. Sometimes that's good. Other times, especially if it's aimed at believers or some righteous cause like, you know, preventing abortion. You know, you can actually get punished for doing the right thing. Or we have more overt tyranny. We have more overt threats. Social media has become a big part of this. Yep. Okay. Right now, you, you've got the politicians opposing big tech. Because you know why they're opposing big tech? It's not on moral principles because they're not in control of it. They want control. It is all about who is in control. So you have these competing interests. And pretty soon enough, they'll get married or at least start dating uh, so that the politicians can horn in on this. But, of course, big tech is above the politicians, and they know it. See, everybody's crying about socialism, and I hate socialism like everybody else, at least you know, who, who believes in things like private property and you know, individual liberty. Okay, But that is not the end game. <laughs> the end game is corporatocracy. It's scientific dictatorship. That's the end game. So this all works the same way it did before. It's just we use tech. We use science. We use political structures. We use social structures. It's all about controlling people, controlling their thoughts, controlling their behaviors and whatnot. It's the same strategy. It's the same strategy. It's just the means are, are a little bit different. So th that's how I think that the whole geopolitical thing uh, works. And, and, you know, it's fascinating to me and disturbing. I mean, I, I'm not cheerleading for this. I think it's very it's palpably discernible that that we have turned a corner 
in the cultural attitude in the West toward Christianity. Christianity is becoming the enemy in a more overt way. I think it's, I think it's sort of been in the crosshairs for a long time. Yep. But, but now it's just more overt. People feel freer to express their, their distrust or their hatred for it. And honestly, why would we not expect that? Somehow we think in America or the West, we, we're immune from like every other Christian group and every other part of the world that's ever existed. Hmm. We're not. Why would we think that? We've just had a couple hundred years where we, you know, we, we went without it. 200 years is a very short time <laughs> on, on, the, on the scope of biblical history and just the scope of the history of humanity. It's a real, it's a blip on the radar. Okay, the norm is not what we've experienced in this country or in the West. That's not the norm. And mm -hmm. we have taken a turn and, and, and we're gonna we're gonna see that all of these forces are gonna be used to either expose the true believer or eradicate them or neutralize them in some way. And exposure is good because now we just know where they're at more and we can target them a little more efficiently, okay? So if you've, if you've never read my fiction, this is where I love to do this kind of stuff in fiction. Um, you know, how, how, how intelligent evil will work the plan. I, I take a specific angle you know, in the book because it's it's sort of paranormal, you know, supernaturalist, you know, fiction. But it's the same basic premise: herd people. How do we move herds? How do we control herds? How do we expose the people we want to target? How do we neutralize and/or eliminate them? Or again, this is this is what I do in my novel: How do we get them to believe that they're embracing what they want to believe, and it's not that thing at all? Awesome. We, we will we will give them exactly what they expect. You know, I, I have an end time scenario in the books, and and the, the main character who's who's a watcher says, "We're going to give you exactly what you're looking for, and you're going to love it, but it ain't going to be what you think it is, and you're never going to know. You're going to be worshiping another god, and you're never going to know it. God will know it, but you won't." That is awesome. You know, so I, again, it, it's the same. It's the same strategy, same endpoints, but the mechanisms are just different. Thanks to time, thanks to technological advancements, thanks to just you know the, the right. passing of stuff. It's so, evil is so much more efficient today. <laughs> I want to be extremely respectful of your time and everyone else's time, Doctor Heiser. I promised. A, an hour, it's 12 o'clock. I want to close with one question. Um, and the question is as follows. This is also heated debate topic in the various you know, groups that um, follow your work. What, if any, um, um, religious affiliation would you say you best align with and why? So you know, what, what denomination is probably the best term to use? Would you say you best align with and why? Wow, this is that's actually a difficult question because I, I don't I, I I mean I will freely admit that there's two sides of this coin. You know, I already know that there's no place I could go that I'm gonna be completely comfortable with. And there's also no place I could go that would be completely comfortable with me. 
So I have I have dispensed caring about it. Okay, my attitude is that where, wherever I am or or would go, try to do something useful. I mean, I say it all the time in the podcast, and I actually mean it. It's not just like shtick. You know, we're literally just here to try to do something useful. Very small list of things I would shoot at. You know, the things that alter the gospel, that alter Christology. Again, these core things that are essential, you know, to, to what the gospel is. I'll, I'll shoot at that stuff all day long and, and you know, would, would feel good about it, you know. Um, but I could I could function in just just about any you know situation and sort of grit my teeth and, and not like it on, on you know in certain respects and then really appreciate it in other respects. So that's a long way of saying I, I, I haven't had an affiliation for gosh. I, I you know I guess the only real the, the real affiliation I, I had that I took seriously, like like that I would I'm I'm a this was right after I became a believer in high school, my early college years. My initial context was a, a fundamental Baptist church. Um, and I still have really good friends in, in that movement, but they also will not have me in to speak. And I'm fine with that. You know, I, I don't I don't need you to do that to know that that we can do useful things together or we can be a blessing. So I, I have just literally dispensed with it all. So I don't really know. I mean, that's that's the best way I can I can answer that, and and that also tells you why. You know, I'm I'm not checking my brain and at the door, but I'm also not asking the, the church that I attend to. Well, you got to read all my books first, and then we'll talk about whether I could be a member. Come on, you know it, it, that's that's just ridiculous. Uh, so I'm looking for people who their hearts in the right place. They're they're trying to do the Great Commission. I mean, the, the Great Commission is still the thing that ought to orient us. That, that you know, it, it's not our political involvement. It's not really good programs that we have. It's not starting schools. It's not, you know, producing curriculum. It's not producing music. Not, if, if these things are not resulting in being more efficient fishers of men, they're a waste of time. Amen. And resources, to be honest with you. So... You know, that's just the way I look at it. That's the way I look at church. It's the way I look at denominations. Uh, I'll tell you what I miss. Uh, I, I, I miss liturgy. I'd, I'd like a little liturgy because I don't have it where I'm at now. So I kind of miss that. Um, like this past Easter, yeah. you know, I, I've just grown used to coming into church on Easter morning. And, you know, it's the it's the time-worn thousands of years. You know, he is risen. He is risen indeed. I didn't hear that this year. It's just not part of this tradition. So there are little things like that that it's like, oh, I wish you know, I, I wish I could tweak this or that. But at the end of the day, you can't. I, I can't tweak that. And if I'm going to obsess over that, then then that's going to be a distraction, you know, directed against me that will pre prevent me from doing the next useful thing. That that's literally all I'm about. Just, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be evangelism. It's got to be discipleship. It has to be useful to the church. And, and useful to the church means not bringing in lots of revenue so we can go build this, you know, build an ark or something. I don't, you know, we're not doing that. We're, we're doing the Great Commission. It, it, it's real simple.
So I'm, awesome. I'm kind of a victim of my own success, <laughs> you know, in that regard. It, it, I, I can remember in grad school writing, you know, when I, I determined that I need to write, I, I wasn't calling it Unseen Realm, and it had a different title. But I remember thinking, and I, it wasn't, you know, an, an appeal to my own vain glory here. It, it's like, if you do this, you're going to lose friends, you're going to lose jobs, it's going to be hard to land somewhere. It's like, are, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> you know, and I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake it. People ask me, why did I write Unseen Realm? I have a one-word answer for that, guilt. <laughs> it's, it's that simple because I, I knew I'm sitting there in my little cubicle as a doctoral student rediscovering my Bible again for the first time and, and, and being hit with the thought, 99% of people in church will never see this stuff. They will never have this experience. There's just something wrong with that. So, yep, we're going to do that. It'll it'll hurt. <laughs> it'll hurt, but I, I I'm going to assume that the Lord has some yeah. plan here, and that will be okay. Amen. Simplistic assumption, but that that's just kind of where it was. Awesome. Thank you, Doctor Heiser. Thank you for your candid. Um, very pastoral answers, <laughs> contrary to how you position yourself. This has been awesome. I will ask that both Michelle and Benjamin handle, Michelle um, and Benjamin Handelman, sorry, email me at info at biblehacking.org. Email me your actual address um, so that I can um, send you out the box today. Both of you are getting bundles of the companion to the book of Enoch volume one and volume two. So please email me your address so I can send them immediately. Um, this has been awesome. Dr. Heiser, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Several people in the comments have been surprised to hear that you also have fiction. So we dropped links to the portent and the, 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 the facade um, down in the chat as well. So um, facade is the first one, the portent is the sequel, and I'm, I'm into the third one right now. So I would ask you to pause on that and do Unseen Realm 2 first, but that's just me. <laughs> well, I, I actually, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I, the realization has, has struck me you know, over the last couple of weeks that the, on, the only way Unseen Realm 2 is ever going to get written is if that's pretty much all I'm doing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come up with, a, in my head, it's a two-year plan to sort of finish and shed everything else so that I can start down that path. And what, I, what, I, what I'm going to do, do over the next two years, I can't tell anybody what it is. But it will be it will be a thing that contributes. It sort of is a is a good prep or lead up to to jumping into that. But yeah, if, if that's going to get written, I, I pretty much have to be writing a hundred percent of the time. Or well, when I say a hundred percent of the time, I mean I mean like twenty hours a week, twenty twenty five hours a week for that to happen. It's just there's so much material. But it's on my radar. You know, I, I, I tend to look for low-hanging fruit. You know, what, what can I do in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, and just start picking stuff off. But I, I'm, I'm getting to the point now where I have to stop doing that. <laughs> I, have to, I have to focus a little bit more, so a, a lot more, but we'll, we'll see. 
Can't thank you enough, Dr. Heiser. Thank you for the work you're doing, in my opinion, for the kingdom of God. Like your work is very genuinely advancing the kingdom. You're opening people's eyes to better ways to study the Bible, better ways to um, get the full context of it and the full weight of what it was trying to say. It's not just about, hey, yay, I can do all things through Christ, which means I can get me Alexis. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you're laughing, but I've heard that preached exactly that way, but it is what it is. Um, well, thank a, you. a little bit of my soul just died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you enough left, you know, to keep going. So. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Heiser. Yeah, Thanks, thank audience. Um, this was amazing Bible hack. Remember to share it, subscribe, like the whole kit and caboodle, and go follow the Naked Bible podcast and Dr. Heiser's other work. Um, it's good for your soul. It's good to just help you understand the Bible better. Um, this has been Bible Hacking. We are out.